Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the China challenge for spectrum and data now and tomorrow. China goes at it with their 18. They're very interested. They're ahead of us on 5G. I believe they're also ahead of us on 6G. The joint fight of the future means facing a new reality. The reality is there are peer adversaries and we are in a change on the geopolitical front on, on the threat. So all the services have to be able to operate when they're contested in every domain. And thinking strategically instead of tactically about technology. What it really culminates in is looking at um, IT modernization really as a change management opportunity versus just a, a tech refresh activity. It's Tuesday, April 11th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. A new tool for cyber hiring for agencies is out from the Office of Personnel Management. The new cybersecurity hiring resource hub is part of OPM's Future of Work resource set. The hub includes information on hiring flexibilities and other things OPM offers for cyber hiring at agencies. The Department of Homeland Security will rebuild an important communications network. A request for information on SAM.gov asks for an iterative approach to redo the Homeland Security Information Network. The RFI says it will base the new HSIN Phoenix project in the cloud. Responses are due April 25th. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Decision makers from the Navy, the Jake Office at DOD, the State Department, and more agencies are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It's at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, April 19th. You can find the link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A new model may be coming for Spectrum. Groups may not own pieces of the Spectrum as they do now. John Zangardi is president and CEO of Red Horse Corporation. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security and former principal deputy CIO at the Defense Department. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Your successor as principal deputy CIO at the Defense Department, uh, Dr. Kelly Fletcher, tells my colleague here at FedScoop, Billy Mitchell, that the future of Spectrum may involve the Defense Department providing it, may involve the private sector providing it under a model called dynamic spectrum sharing. What's your sense of the future of Spectrum for organizations like DOD and DHS? Welcome, John. Hey, Francis. I'm thrilled to be here again. Uh, Kelly Fletcher, I think very highly of her, so she is really giving you an indication of where things are going. Uh, but, but let me back up just a little bit and explain why this is important. You know, Spectrum's a resource. It, it isn't a resource like oil or coal, because unlike oil or coal, when you use Spectrum and you're done with it, it's available, whereas coal and oil would not be. But it's a scarce resource, so it becomes very important. And there's regulatory bodies out, out there that when I was in DOD and the Navy and DHS, we dealt with on the federal side, really dealing with the Department of Defense and uh, the federal side is the National Telecommunications Information Administration or NTIA. And for businesses, state and local commercial, it's the FCC, which manages everything else. But the inflection point that Kelly points to is 5G, but it goes back a little bit further. It's the internet. What 5G does is it takes advantage of that limited existing electromagnetic spectrum to create more access to the things she's talking about in there. I mean, you and I both love accessing voice, video, and 
data while we're on the move in a city or driving down the highway. Well, not when you're driving, but when you're a passenger driving down the highway. And that takes up a lot of bandwidth. But the bandwidth that's really crucial to this happens to be exactly where the military really likes it. And, and here's part of the problem. So when you, when you talk about military use of the bandwidth, it's typically radars. Uh, maybe it's on a plane or a ship or it's a weather radar. It's command and control, whatever it is. It's built into infrastructure. And when I was in the Navy and Spectrum was sold off and the money went into the Spectrum Relocation Fund, you know, we had some funds where we could relocate that spectrum. The problem is you're running out of spectrum, one. And two, uh, if you have to go out and change the radars, that means develop a solution, deploy a solution across maybe thousands of platforms, it's hard. Or on ships with availability periods, how long will it take to do this and how available is the ship? So the responsiveness there is not very quick. It's kind of slow. So the whole idea of dynamically sharing this when it's not in use, but allowing sort of a, a tiered structure where priority is given to say Navy or DOD or law enforcement users is really, I think, the, the, the part of the future. So the military can continue doing mission, law enforcement can continue policing if there's disaster relief from FEMA, they can get out there and do it. But on the other hand, you know, commercial users could take advantage of the 5G ability to access lots of data. So that was a long-winded answer, Francis, <laughs> there you go. No, long-winded, John, implies that there wasn't substance there, and there was a lot of substance there. What Dr. Fletcher tells Billy Mitchell that I find most striking is um, that this might not belong to somebody, as I referenced at the beginning. She, uh, she told him, we're going to have to share. We're going to have to share with industry. We're going to have to figure out how to incentivize the sharing with industry, figure out how to get the right technologies available through 5G and through Spectrum. Um, what's, what's your first sense? What's your kind of instinct, your gut, about what that sharing dynamic might look like, John? Well, I kind of gave a hint to you in the in the answer where I talked about tiering it. Yeah. So if if you if you go back and you look at the the Citizen Broadband Radio Service or CBRS, it really provides sort of a, a tiering where the incumbent of that particular slice of spectrum has priority. Then there are priority access licenses. You know, people who paid to use it, and they're tiered as number two. And then there's kind of general users. Hey, if it's not uh, being used, you can jump on it. I think there's a structure like that, but I think the bigger challenge, and you can see the DOD's beginning to look at this, is the technology, the algorithms, the, the stuff that makes it possible still needs a lot of work. And I think this is really important because in the article, it talks about the joint all domain command and control concept of operations and making sure that that mission focused thing is capable of doing what it needs to do will require something like dynamic spectrum sharing. And I believe that there are several companies out there already looking at this, and DOD's done some tests to begin seeing what is in the range of the possible. So having worked a long time in my life in the acquisition side buying things, uh, this is not an overnight answer. It's going to take some time, but I think it, it portends uh, a positive outcome if it works, where commercial 
and military, and law enforcement, and other government services could somehow share the scarce resources, valuable commodity, if you will. There's a school of thought in Washington uh, in the technology community, John, that we waited too long to maximize the potential of 5G, that we let China at least catch up with us, if not surpass us in the utilization of 5G, and that we need to be proactive now to think about 6G and 7G and so on. What can we learn from the things that we're doing now about spectrum sharing and 5G, given that it's a finite resource? I imagine the same will be the case for whatever the next Gs are. What can we learn from that to apply to the way that we think about these other technologies that are inevitably coming down the line? Yeah. So, so first off, you're absolutely right. We, we let China get ahead of us. I've attended a few of the world radio conferences in my career, albeit a few years ago. And one of the things that you see when you attend those is China goes at it with their A-team. They're very interested. They're ahead of us on 5G. I believe they're also ahead of us on 6G. And this whole thing really is about how do you shape the regulatory environment internationally to ensure that we don't fall behind. And number two, how do we put in place the right incentives within the United States to ensure that businesses and corporations can develop the technology that keeps us ahead? It's really important that we not lose sight of where the near peer competitors are in this world in terms of developing um, technology. More importantly, we in this country need to make sure that we are ensuring that we put students through technical pipelines and colleges we need more engineers. We need more computer scientists. Don't kid yourself. The Chinese are very much dedicated to ensuring their students, their kids, understand calculus and math. And we have to make sure that just like we used to say reading is fundamental, we somehow have to come up with a saying that says math is fundamental. The difference that we have is that the Chinese can order their kids to take certain things and pursue certain career tracks. We don't do it that way, obviously. And so uh, the word incentive that we talked about earlier, that Dr. Fletcher used regarding spectrum comes up regarding our uh, career paths that we create for people to pursue these things. What do you see as reasonable incentives, particularly what can the government do, the individual agencies do to demonstrate this is a great opportunity for you to come and contribute to the mission of this agency, so on. I didn't mean to get you on a personnel discussion, but here we find ourselves, right? So I've been down this road a whole bunch, you know, primarily from a cyber perspective. But, but let me say something fundamentally. You're right, Francis. We are not a command and control country or economy. The Chinese are. But I believe the fundamental nature of America, where our freedom and individuality allows us to spontaneously order and beat the bejeebies out of anybody if we want to. I fundamentally believe that our freedom is the key. Now, to answer your question. The salaries that are offered in particular areas are too low. We have to find ways of creating a better salary or compensation structure, one. Two, we have to find a way of uh, bringing these people into the government quicker. And three, the government has to get used to the fact that this, not my generation, not your generation, but the generations that are behind us like to move around. So, hey, I'm going to come into the government for two or three years. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to pull out. But I want to come back in about five or six years. 
we have to find a way of allowing that. And fourth, security clearances, which are fundamental to this. We have to speed up the process to get security clearances and bringing people on board through that process. So I hope that answers your question. It does, John. You always do. I appreciate having you on. Thank you very much for joining me today. You are welcome, Francis. Always good to see you. You can read more about the future of Spectrum in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast on Wednesday's show, the Coast Guard's Cyber Mission. Rear Admiral Mike Ryan, the commander of Coast Guard Cyber Command, is on Wednesday's Daily Scoop podcast. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Joint All-Domain Command and Control effort at the Defense Department has a new implementation plan, and it will get a new leader. Air Force Lieutenant General Mary O'Brien will relieve Marine Lieutenant General Dennis Crawl. Major General Peter Gallagher, U.S. Army retired, is Senior Vice President for Technology and Solutions at CACI. He's former director of the Army Futures Command Network Cross-Functional Team and Chief Information Officer J-6 at U.S. Central Command. General Gallagher, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you think the most important next step is for JADC2? Is it funding, as we saw in the budget request? Is it leadership? Is it something else? All of those things? Welcome, General. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's both, right? I think that it, obviously um, any good vision without resources uh, is, is not going to be followed through. And so I do think funding does matter. And alignment of resources is is absolutely critical, but leadership also matters more, in, in my opinion. And and the fact that you have the Secretary of Defense signing out the implementation plan and his Deputy Secretary, uh, you know, you know, implement really charged with implementing it and seeing it through, and you have alignment from the services. I think that level of leadership is absolutely important. Uh, I think you know I don't know what the timing is going to be uh, for the change out of, of General Crawl and and uh, General O'Brien, uh, but I do think, you know, you know, based on what I've seen at the, at the love, highest levels in, inside the department, you know, they're, they're determined to maintain continuity and momentum through whatever change and transition happens. So I think it's a combination of the criticality of leadership and funding uh, for, to, to really see this vision and this concept through. I think of all of the things that you mentioned there, sir, the alignment is the thing that strikes me as tremendously uh, uh, important. Uh, I'm, I've talked to Army leaders about Project Convergence, I don't know, years ago. Same thing with ABMS in the Air Force. Same thing with Project Overmatch in the Navy. And now that they're all, they all seem to be pushing toward the same goal, where I'm not sure that alignment was the case for a long time, that seems to me right. to be the real breakthrough here. Is that a fair read on my part? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I you know, every, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a knife fight every day in the Pentagon. It's, you know, different services have their interests and, and their, uh, but but I, I do think what we're seeing, and I saw it play out right after Project Convergence 20 uh, in, in the fall of 20, uh, you know, in, in, in November, we had the Army Air Force talks. And, and at the time, General McConville and General C.Q. Brown were, were committed to kind of moving forward and, and taking the next steps to really share the data and, and focus the alignment. And it was two service chiefs in the Pentagon you know, with their battle staff, kind of comparing notes between advanced battle management system and, and project convergence and, and, and signing a memo to kind of show some commitment. And from that memo and that commitment, you know, when I was on active duty, we took the task to try to do the implementation and really work better, work smarter and bring the uh, Air Force 
into our, our, our environment there at Aberdeen Proving Ground and start passing data and sharing information. Over time, that started to mature. And we had Army senior leaders, the new G6, the new G2, the new CIO, uh, come to visit us at Aberdeen to kind of see what was going on. We had established the Joint Systems Integration Lab there as kind of a risk reduction facility for project convergence. But more importantly, uh, it was being driven and led by, by now the Indo or, or USAPAC commander, General Charlie Flynn, who was the G357 at the Army at the time, to be the Joint Systems Integration Lab for Joint Automated Command and Control for the Army, which is kind of the, the place where things happen. Uh, really to test some of the concepts in a lab environment, uh, to buy down risk and, and really kind of focus on what's really in the art of the possible. So as that happened last winter, um, there was a lot of interest in what the Army was doing there, the partnership with the Air Force. And when General Crawl took over as the new J-6 of the Joint Staff, uh, he came out and visited us uh, right before the holidays. Uh, and then he and uh, Dave Spurk, the chief data officer at the time for Office of Secretary of Defense, hosted the first, first ever uh, JADC2 data summit at Aberdeen with all the key stakeholders. And so I think that was really important uh, because it was kind of being co-led uh, by at the highest levels of, of, of our, our Department of Defense between the chief data officer and the Joint Staff J6. Uh, and that led the two service chiefs, you know, General McConville and General Brown, Army and Air Force, to host the next warfighter talks at Aberdeen uh, in the facility there, the Joint Systems Integration Lab, because a lot had progressed since the previous project convergence. And we were beginning the joint focus project convergence 21 uh, with all the other services playing in there. And, and so what ended up happening is you had not only General McConville and General um, General Brown from the Air Force, but you also had Admiral Gilday uh, representing the Navy. Uh, the Marine Corps Commandant could not make it, but uh, they, you know, they're part of Project Overmatch. Uh, but uh, he did have representation on the ground. And we had members of the newly uh, formed you know, Space Force there as well. It was very powerful to see all those senior leaders converge outside the Pentagon uh, in a venue uh, to, to really kind of look through the, the nuts and bolts of what it's going to take to integrate sensors and integrate effects uh, and, and, you know, in a joint environment. And, you know, it wasn't all fully operational at the time, but the staffs and the, you know, the soldiers, the sailors, the airmen and Marines and the warrant officers and the NCOs and petty ops, they were all in there, you know, with the technicians from the labs trying to figure out how to make all this happen. It was, it was pretty powerful to see. Uh, and, and it generated, I think, a commitment from all the service chiefs that they are aligned. Although each service has unique requirements, they were aligned in making the joint fight uh, a reality in, 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 you know, in kind of getting past some of the parochialism and some of the inhibitors that have uh, plagued us in the past. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, sir. And I wonder what continues that momentum. What, what has to happen in the next six months, uh, the next well, two years, the next five years to continue that momentum? Well, that was a year ago, right? And so I think what happened to, to kind of codify the momentum was the secretary, you know, putting his name behind uh, the plan, right? And, 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 you know, Deputy Secretary Hicks being the, the driver from OSD level and the continued momentum from the Joint Staff to kind of synchronize the, the COCOM services and combat support agencies to, to get that alignment. Um, you know, we saw, obviously there's not a lot of progress that can be made during a continuing resolution, but once the budget 
uh, you know, was finally finally let. I mean, you did see some alignment of resources towards that end. Uh, is you know, will all the services get everything they need? Absolutely not. So there's going to be some trades required to to do that. But I think uh, what, what you see here is at least a unity of effort and a concept that's driving um, the approach for not necessarily a whole bunch of brand new programs and a brand and a bunch of brand new funding lines, but existing programs that are going to be upgraded or modified and funding lines that get adjusted. And, and I think as long as the services are kind of, you know, showing that unity of effort and communicating that to the committees on the Hill uh, where they understand where, where we're trying to go, uh, then, you know, it'll help balance those resources and align those resources. Does that make sense? It does, sir. And I'm asking this next question from a continuity perspective and not a political perspective because we don't do politics on this show. But it (laughs) strikes me as another thing that's important is that this administration's Deputy Secretary of Defense signs out this implementation plan of something that was developed under a previous administration, which signifies to me this is really important and everybody agrees this is something that the department's going to continue to pursue and it's not something that somebody's going to put on a shelf because somebody else did it. Right, right. Yeah, and I, and I think regardless if the terminology, you know, JADC2 and, and the concepts as they're written, uh, it, you know, I mean, lexicons may change, but the reality is there are peer adversaries and we are in a change on the geopolitical front on, on the threat. So all the services have to be able to operate when they're contested in every domain. And that's that's a reality. So they need assured network transport connectivity from enterprise to edge that will enable them to do that. Uh, they all need to make decisions at speed at a pace faster than the adversary. So they're going to need, you know, computing and uh, access to data and storage and you know leveraging kind of cloud hosting environments and optimized computing environments on the edge and, and, and smart applications that allow them to do that with speed and kind of take the human out of the loop as much as possible and accelerate the speed of decision making whether you're sitting in a command post or an operating operation center or you're in a mobile or dismounted or on a platform the, the ability to decide quickly is going to be necessary regardless of whether the concept survives contact or not. The change of administration, the changing of, of leadership, I don't think should have an impact on the need for funding lines, program lines, and efforts. We owe it, I think, to our service members to deliver those capabilities that will allow them to fight through a contested environment, stay connected in that environment, and will allow them to, to make decisions quickly. I mean, that's, that's really what this ends up being all about. General Gallagher, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks very much for your time today, sir. All right. Thank you. You can read more about JADC2 and joint warfighting in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference May 19th. It's happening at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. You can find the link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The State Department says it's using the cloud to move capability closer to users. It operates in more than 300 locations around the world. Brian Merrick is director of cloud programs at the State Department. He tells FedScoop's Wyatt Cash moving to the cloud has been a big step in aligning technology to mission. As you can imagine, we have a highly complex uh, mission set you know, with over 273 posts overseas, uh, you know, 34 different bureaus, 
a lot of functional activity happening at, at every level of, of risk and, and level of interest. So as we move into the cloud, we're really able to, to move uh, into delivery at the speed of the mission. And so moving out of that waterfall mentality and into using agile methodologies really pairs nicely with the cloud technology so that now we're able to deliver uh, you know, applications that meet specific tailored business needs rapidly and make sure that those uh, end state outcomes are really aligned uh, from an IT perspective with what's happening at, at the mission level. We've seen huge advances in terms of providing decision support capabilities through data analytics, uh, certainly better uh, you know, in, information around specific activities through workflow tools and, and data visualization tools. Um, I, I think we're poised to see a, a huge increase in, in the use of bots um, in AI and ML as we, we really start to, to mature uh, from a business perspective. So it's helping us change our processes and improve our processes, uh, become more efficient and also be better stewards of, of resources. And then ultimately for the end consumer, which is the public, as we, we have services that, that impact the public, we're, we're able to meet that expectation that, that folks have of, of a government experience that mimics what they have in their regular day-to-day -day life. And so we're, we're definitely moving forward rather rapidly in, in that venue. Talk a little about the primary technical or uh, technology challenges that um, you know, the Department of State was facing in delivering services to the public. And, and how did the cloud kind of help you overcome some of them? Well, as you can imagine, uh, you know, in the past, I, I think folks used a lot of spreadsheets and uh, you know, old websites and, and whatnot. And so actually trying to move information, move data from a platform and an architecture standpoint in the back end, very challenging, right? So uh, especially when you have a, a global audience. So as folks are, are typing into their screens and there's a huge delay, incredibly frustrating for people that are trying to interact with those services. And so by moving to the cloud, we're able to, to really become a lot more elastic uh, in the, the capabilities we provide at the platform layer. And so um, really, especially for real-time processing needs, it's been a huge improvement. And so now as, as folks try to enter data and try to interact with, with our resources, they can do so uh, in many respects a, a lot more efficiently. Obviously, there are still parts of the world where the internet um, penetration is poor, where infrastructure is still a challenge. And of course, you know, we're still working through uh, you know, improvements to, to get through that. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see those improvements over time on an infrastructure basis. Uh, but, but really that, that mirroring or, or sort of that marriage of, of application capability with, uh, you know, the elastic capabilities of cloud with uh, single identities from a security standpoint, with improved infrastructure architectures in the cloud, we're really able to deliver uh, that experience in, in a much more uh, advanced way. And can you describe um, maybe a couple of key outcomes that you can point to your management about how the cloud has allowed uh, your agency to, you know, achieve, you know, greater service delivery compared to maybe where you were just a year or two ago? Sure. I mean, certainly in, in, in response to, uh, you know, some of the challenges we've had recently in terms of crisis management, um, you know, we've been able to leverage cloud-based applications very rapidly to deliver capabilities so that we could ingest uh, really critical information uh, from people in the public realm that needed to be evacuated, for instance, uh, and then share that information through our analytics platforms with senior management so they could make real-time decisions based on data of what's happening on the ground in a way that just wasn't even possible two, three years ago. 
So that's been a, a huge improvement uh, for us. And I, I think we're going to continue to see that kind of drive towards data capture leading to uh, analytics uh, packages to lead to decision outcomes, uh, really changing the, the, the scope of how uh, leadership really looks at IT across the department and, and how to leverage it. So uh, it's definitely something we're excited about. And I think we're going to see more of that in the future. And then lastly, Brian, um, um, what were one or two key lessons or maybe even surprises that you experienced moving to the cloud? And wh where do you plan to adopt additional cloud services next? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the, the greatest lessons learned is that, you know, the cloud really mechanically operates completely differently than the on-premise environments. And so it's really important to have talented staff that understand the nuances of the technology and, and the art of the possible and how to leverage it to its, its best uh, capability to meet outcomes. Um, also, we learned uh, pretty early on that it's, it's critical to also adapt your policy, uh, especially around compliance. Um, those things just operate differently, the way you monitor, the way you secure, um, having a single identity provider across your multiple environments, those types of tactics and, and techniques are really important in having a successful implementation. And as well, you know, the, the way we purchase uh, cloud. So making changes to the procurement process, because it really is highly driven by um, the procurements that, that we make. So making sure we have the right terms and conditions in the agreements, that we scope that work appropriately, that we understand, you know, how the failovers work and, you know, how we can pull our data out if need be really critical components. And of course, funding as well, in terms of having good cost models um, for how to manage uh, these types of activities at scale, whether, whether it be a license-based uh, implementation or a consumption-based implementation and different nuances between those. So it, it really is a, a sea change uh, and it definitely uh, represents a, a massive organizational change. And, and I think, you know, to, to sum all that up, what it really culminates in is looking at um, IT modernization really as a change management opportunity versus just a, a tech refresh activity. And I think if organizations take it from that perspective, uh, they'll be more prone to, to meet with success. Brian Merrick of the State Department with FedScoop's Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow with Rear Admiral Mike Ryan, the commander of Coast Guard Cyber Command. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.